let's be honest, right? When we talk about practicalness, so often people think of formulas, but there is no formula. There's no magical plug and play push button experience. Everyone wants what Sherry Waddell calls the silver bullet. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined by Dave the Man Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? Good. That was simple. That was simple. It was simple. It was very simple. Ecce homo. I was going to say <laughs> that. Ecce but, homo. But, but we get letters because uh, no one knows Latin. We have a special guest with us today, the creative director. You, you have to be exhausted with all the creativity that is coming out of Word on Fire. We got Brandon Vaught on the show. How you doing, Brandon? Hey, I'm doing well. And to be clear, I'm not creative director. We do have another creative director, so I want to make sure oh, I'm not stealing her title. Comer. I'm the content director. Yeah, Con- oh, I knew, what I knew right away when he said that. I was like, no, I'm no, an idiot. No. I'm an idiot. You don't listen. You know enough. what's funny is <laughs> on my on my website, layevangelist.com, I put I'm the founder and creative director. That's why I said that, because on, on whenever, you know, your title is introduced, content director, of course, content. But I always put creative directors because I thought it sounds nice. And then I have all these people like when they do the formal introduction, Michael Gormley is the founder and creative director. Oh, and I'm ooh, like, the creative I just gave director. myself all these. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just, I like, I, they, they said, what, what does a creative director do? And I go, well, on my website, I write a blog post <laughs> twice a year. <laughs> like, that's about it. <laughs> so what are you doing over at Word on Fire? Not a lot. I, I don't see a lot happening from you guys. Yeah. You're mostly sleeping and collecting checks. Yeah, right. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> it's like you. It's working two days a year and then kind of sitting back the rest of the year. Yeah, no, no. We, we have so much going on at Word on Fire. One of the things I've, I've been most delighted about is I oversee now our big publishing enterprise. And awesome. as recently as like a year ago, we published four, five, six books a year. Um, but we've exploded that. I think this year we're on pace for 24 books. Next year we've got over 30 books. So uh, we're, we're pumping out books. And it's been delightful for me to see, you know, we've always been such a digital based ministry. We've done websites, social media, email, videos, all that kind of stuff. And we're, we've still got the foot on the gas in all those areas. But I think COVID has really opened up a space where people are so burned out by screens, by Zoom calls, by phones, by tablets. A lot of people are turning back to books. And as a bibliophile, nothing could make me happier. People are returning to long form reading, disconnected from screens. Uh, So we're seeing that at Word on Fire and we're trying to lean into it and, and help it. Yeah. yeah the, the only the only podcast I listen to besides your podcast Brandon with with Bishop Barron is uh is with Cal Newport and he uh, there's a mm. whole movement behind him now with with turning mm. off the screen so I it, oh, yeah. he was mentioning I don't know if it was in a blog post or, or if it was in the podcast, but he was mentioning the other day how books are having a big return right now. Big, big comeback. Yeah. He, uh, his book, Digital Minimalism, had a huge yeah. impact on me. Oh, and me in too. that book, in fact, he mentions this, uh, this company called Mouse Books, uh, which yeah. I ended up subscribing yeah. to. They're like very thin, yeah. I don't know, 20, 30 page books about the size of a cell phone. And you put those in your pocket. And the idea yeah. is whenever you're in the store in the waiting line, you're tempted to pull out your phone and scroll through social media, you pull out this little mouse book and it has excerpts from, you know, the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson or Seneca or, you know, Marcus Aurelius. And so you're reading classic great books and and very short doses, but you're shifting your mind away from screen-based, social media-based stuff. I love it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think Matt Frad said it best when he this, this young woman was on her phone reading a book and he was reading a physical book. And uh, they, they got in a conversation. She's like, well, why do you think you're because he's so anti-technology, even though he makes his whole living on it. And they're going back and forth on it. He said, here's the deal. Your book, your phone acts on you. I act solely <laughs> on the book. And it's a really great. So I always take physical books to gymnastics with my kids. Yeah. And I sit there and all the like they're you're drawn to your phone because it's beeping at you and it's shining at you and flashing at you. Whereas, you know, my new Catholic doctrine of the atonement book is not flashing at me while I'm sitting there reading in gymnastics. Yeah. So what uh, what new thing is coming out? Can you give us a, a sneak, you know, in the Brandon Vaught access to the pipeline? What things are you excited about coming out? 
Yeah. Let me see what I can reveal safely. So one of them, which we've already right. announced, is the second volume of the Word on Fire Bible series, which is Sweet. at the printer right now. I can't wait Ooh. for this to get out to the world. It's about 40% bigger than volume one. So new, <laughs> better, bigger, longer. Uh, it's got more artwork, more commentaries. The range of, of church fathers and commentators, including in this Bible, is significantly more than volume one. I think it's something like 75% more people that we're pulling from throughout the great tradition commenting on the scriptures. Um, so mm. we're thrilled about that. That's coming out in January. The first volume covered the four Gospels. This second volume will cover the rest of the New Testament. Um, so I think that's that's the thing we're all most excited about at Word on Fire. And then we've got a lot of other stuff in the pipeline. As a little teaser, we haven't really made a big deal about this publicly, but we're we're preparing to start a Word on Fire kids line of books. Um, we're calling <laughs> it Word on Fire Spark. Uh, so spark like a little flame. Um, oh, so that's awesome. Can't say much more beyond that, but that's coming soon. <laughs> Hi, kids. That's awesome. You want to learn your uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar theology? <laughs> Balthasar Come for kids. kids. The, yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> the mystery of Holy Saturday. I would totally buy that for my kids lessons. in a second. I know. I Mysterium know, right. Pascale for kids. <laughs> <laughs> that is still sitting on my shelf. Too much Latin. Um, so we the reason why we bought uh brought Brandon on bought Brandon that's what I just said that would be awesome why we brought we bought him for a low low price no it's because uh, I'm a big fan of Word on Fire and I get all of their delightful books that is now filling up my entire bookshelf right there uh, which is insane but I have had purchased multiple copies of your original version of the book Return How to Draw Your Child Back to the Church I've bought it because I don't know if you know this uh, but a lot of devout faithful Catholics who are baby boomers and Gen Xers have suffered the grand heartbreak of watching their kids leave the church. And so this book was entirely written for that crowd to bring your children back to the faith, whether they're teenagers or, or um, you know, young adults or whatever that are have many different type of objections and reasons for leaving. And then when you just re-release this book, um, I thought this would be a great interview to have because doubtless many of our own listeners, not just people in my church and all that stuff, but many of our own listeners, this is the reason why they listen. Right. My adult children have left the church. How do I bring them home? It, it kills mom and dad to think that Sunday after Sunday, their kids are going without the blessed sacrament and uh, they don't have the freedom of the sacrament of confession in their lives. So what, what for you prompted you to write this specific book and uh, yeah. And what words of encouragement can we give? Sure. What prompted it was similar experiences to you, Michael, that I would go around the country speaking at conferences, parishes, dioceses, and regardless of the topic I spoke about, you know, I could be talking about new media or Catholic social teaching or whatever. Whenever there'd be a Q&A session, almost every single time someone would approach the mic and ask just that, you know, my son, my daughter has, has left the church. It's heartbreaking. What do I do? What should I do? And then I started talking to priests and they would tell me the same thing. This is the number one most heartfelt concern in my parish. The number one thing, you know, parents and grandparents complain to me about. And so I realized it was this seriously pressing problem. There wasn't a lot of resources for parents and grandparents. And then, you know, I'm, I was at the time when I wrote this, a, a relatively recent convert, a young guy. I have lots of friends who have left the church and come back. And so all those pieces kind of came together to write the book. And then it's just taken off. I, I published the original version in 2015 and it sold like 50,000 copies almost immediately. And it was making its way all around the world and, and helping a lot of parents and grandparents. And then, as you mentioned, um, this past year, Word on Fire re-released the second edition of the book. It's a little bit expanded and adjusted and that's helped a lot more people. Um, to answer your other question, though, like what, what's the immediate advice I would give? I think the biggest thing most parents and grandparents in this situation need to hear is that there is always hope. There's always hope. I talk to many of them who say, yeah, I could see how, you know, it's possible that other kids or grandkids might come back to the church, but you don't know my son or daughter. Like their lifestyle is so off kilter. They're so out of control. They hate God, don't even want to talk about religion, would never, ever go to mass with me. You don't understand how far away they are. There's, there's no way that they would ever come back. I think what those parents need to hear is a firm conviction that 
there's hope for them, even and especially for them, that you read some of the stories in, in this book, but then you read some of the stories throughout church history, you realize there have been people that are so much further away from God that that chasm is is so almost incalculable, incalculably larger than the distance your child is, and they came back. And so there's always hope for you. God, God can always bring his children back to him, and he's doing it every day. So don't lose hope. The moment you you begin to despair is the moment that that just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if, if you don't think it's possible, then you're not going to do anything to help it happen. Yeah. Uh, but in this book, I lay out a bunch of strategies to to make that hope a reality. Yeah, I like uh, in the in the introduction, you, you say, don't just skip to the game plan. I know you're going to want to skip to the game plan, but take a moment and read through the why they're leaving. You have yeah. to focus on the why they're leaving. Because, I mean, let's be honest, right? When we talk about practicalness, so often people think of formulas, but there is no formula. There's no, you know, magical plug and play push button experience. Everyone wants what Sherry Waddell calls the silver bullet, right? If I say these words in this order, enlightenment will come. They will fall yeah. on their knees and repent. I, I used to do this uh, beach evangelization called Sun Life, and Dave is laughing because it's Cause he used to call it a mission trip. That was a, that was a mission trip for Gomer. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> nothing was more uncomfortable than walking up to strangers on a beach and asking them if you can pray with them or anything like that. But uh, every time we would get done, and I I'm a I'm a chatty Kathy, but in that circumstance, I could not talk to people so i get on the bus and they'd be like so does anyone have any glory stories and all these people would be like yeah i prayed with this 18 year old who was you know lost in cocaine and then they'd come to me and i go uh i prayed with these people and they started speaking in tongues and they're like really and i was like no i clammed up the whole time i'm sorry i'm sorry uh yeah i was just an epic failure at that um so what i wanted to do was go through some of the reasons why and for people who know word on fire you know you listen to bishop baron talk about the nuns and why they're leaving can we just go through some of the main reasons why people are actually why young adults especially are leaving the church today sure you know one thing i like to emphasize here is we don't have to guess at the answers to this question you know i, I find when you go to a parish yeah, and yeah. the questions raised why are young people leaving the church you'll get all sorts of opinions and thoughts and ideas you know but we really don't have yeah. to guess because there's a massive amount of survey data around this question there's been yeah. huge social science research groups that have asked former catholics why they left there's been dioceses, multiple dioceses that have commissioned what are effectively exit surveys asking former Catholics why they left. And so we have tens of thousands of responses, so we can get a pretty good scientific picture of what it is. So depending on the survey, the answers, you know, very slightly, but from my perspective, they can be grouped into a few general categories. The number one reason people give, and this is true in almost every survey, is that they just no longer believe. The, that Those are the three words they'll respond with. I no longer believe. Now, interpret that as you will, whether that means they no longer believe in God, they no longer trust the church, they no longer believe in the church's teachings, whatever the case, they're no longer convicted that these things are true. Um, to me, that's always been a failure in apologetics, that they just haven't been good, given good reasons to support their belief. They were given a lot of things to believe, about Catholicism, about God, about the moral life, but never any good reasons why. And so they they no longer believe. Second, in almost every survey, they would say their spiritual needs are not being met. Um, you especially see this among uh, among Catholics who leave the Catholic Church and end up in an evangelical community. They say, you know, at my Catholic Church, I just wasn't being fulfilled at Mass. Yeah. I wasn't learning the Bible the way I wanted to. I didn't get to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. So these people are hungry for a deep spiritual life and for whatever reason just didn't find it in the Catholic Church. Um, and then finally, this one I find interesting. A lot of people will say they just gradually drifted away. So there, there yeah. wasn't a reason that pushed them out. There wasn't something compelling that pulled them away. It was just that they kind of stopped going to mass as consistently as they had been. They, you know, maybe went from weekly to biweekly to monthly, and then maybe just Christmas and Easter. And then after a few years, they kind of just stopped going all together. And so it was this kind of gradual, unintentional drifting out of the church. And I've always seen that yeah. as a positive sign. If it means that 
there wasn't one thing that pushed them out of the church, then there's there's no single obstacle or hurdle to bringing them back. Uh, but in general, those are those are the three major categories. I I unpack each of those and highlight a few more in the book, but those are the three big ones. Yeah, I I started to wonder why you know, like how can you say you just drift away from the church? I mean, like from Jesus, from all this stuff, and then you realize like. So I, I took over youth ministry and I began having these just, you know, surveying these kids anecdotally. And I would say, you know, OK, today we're going to talk about the covenant with Moses. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Moses. And less than half the kids would raise their hands. And I said, well, how about the Ten Commandments? I thought everyone's heard of the Ten Commandments, you know. No, same amount of kids, less than half. And then uh, I was teaching about a 300 uh, freshmen and I asked them, how many of you have ever heard of Cain and Abel? And I'm like, come on, like it was probably less than a tenth. And so when I finished, I go, you have no, seriously, guys. Okay. I know no one likes to raise their hand as a freshman. <laughs> just seriously. How many of you have ever just heard? You don't even have to regurgitate the story. No one raised a hand, right? So it was like literally 10 people in the room. And so I said, okay, this is what I want you to do. Everyone who didn't raise your hand, I want you to go home and just punch your parents in the face because they <laughs> failed you. They <laughs> failed you. But I don't, I, I, I realized like I would hate to go to that church. I would hate to be a part of that kind of faith, but that wasn't my faith. Like my faith, my parents were living it and we were being taught it. And I was exposed to, you know, scriptural rosary and Bible study and all this stuff just as a kid watching my parents and joining in and all that stuff. But th they had nothing solid in their whole lives. And so I'm like, yeah, you want to know why they're just drifting away? I mean, look at your, look at how we're presenting the faith in so many different ways and look at the home life and how we're not encouraging some sort of vibrancy like they there's no there there like if you don't know who abraham is moses is like if you don't even know the story then what what do you know about the faith the most common question i get i don't know what you think about this the most common question i get about people who just start setting their faith as a junior or senior in high school is so why aren't we jewish if jesus was jewish hmm. right like that's the number one question i get hmm. that's hmm. funny yeah. That's funny. Because they're, you know, they're you know, completely detached. You know, with the drifting away, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. But I also think like when I grew up, you know, we're fighting against the world, the flesh and the devil. But the world was less jealous when I was younger. Do you know what I mean? Like like mm. families now, like their their schedules are so unbelievably full that it is something. I mean, it is like almost like they forget you know, they forget yeah. about sanctifying a particular day, let alone the Lord's day. And it is weird that, I mean, it's very strange that we live in a world that demands you live in it fully, you know, more and more and more, you know. Well, yeah, it's anyways. owning them. Yeah. It's owning them. So what, uh, let's go through the next section of your book a little bit. Um, you come up with a game plan to help parents understand like key strategies and tactics in order to bring them back can we can we go through and highlight some of the main things which i love because it and this is the reason why we had you on the show because your game plan links up with so much of what we've spent hours and hours talking about on this podcast yeah. so people please keep listening please keep listening even though it's in a book please keep listening yeah, don't just buy the book <laughs> don't just buy the book <laughs> daddy needs the ascension press money so don't just buy <laughs> So what are some of the game plans? Um, like n my favorite part, and we were talking about this before the show, is chapter five, pray fast and sacrifice. And we we always try to emphasize the intercessory component of evangelization. You cannot diminish the power of a parent's prayer, right? You cannot diminish offering up sacrifices for parents. So I don't know. Wh wh what would you say um, are key takeaways for parents in, I mean, obviously the whole, every chapter, you got four through 11 here. Um, that is all on this game plan. But what would you say are the big the big takeaways from here? Yeah, it's funny. I'm surprised you guys didn't mention this, that in chapter four, which is the very first step, it says, listen to the Every Knee Shall Bow podcast, that that's the, the first step in the <laughs> exactly. game plan. Oh, exactly. there's, there's, yeah. <laughs> right. no. Listen, listen, listen. <laughs> I actually do. There is a, a in chapter six, which is on equipping yourself, telling parents, look, if, if, yep. if you're going to want to play a role in leading your child back to the church, you got to know your faith and love your faith even more than than they will because if you don't know it and love it it won't be attractive to them and and so i encourage them to listen to good catholic podcasts read good catholic books get up to speed on your faith so that would certainly include podcasts like this 
Uh, but the the section on pray, fast, and sacrifice, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think most parents coming to this problem are looking for the practical steps of tell me what to say, tell me what to do. But before we get there, I say, no, before that, you have to get your soul in the right place. You have to to be in a way before you say and before you do. So that's why we put this section on praying, fasting, sacrifice before the others. And I, I also say, and I, I com- I'm completely convicted about this, that if you only had to pick one of these, what is it, seven, eight chapters of practical steps to do, if you only had time and interest and energy to do one, this is the one you should do. And, and I don't mean that just because you know, we want to sound pious and emphasize prayer and fasting and sacrifice. I'm utterly convicted of that. Uh, In that chapter, I share stories of parents and grandparents, both historical and contemporary, who have done nothing else but pray for their fallen away child and have seen that child come back to the church. You know, grandparents that have prayed for 40 years for their grandchild to come back, and only in mid-adulthood did that child come back. You know, of course, we have the story of Monica and Augustine, the paradigm of this example. You know, Monica pleaded, she argued, she cajoled, and nothing worked. Augustine was completely ambivalent and even antagonistic toward the faith. Um, but then it was through her prayers that he he began to be a little more open. And then the pivotal moment was when she got Ambrose to to come into Augustine's life. And Augustine couldn't hear truth from his mother's lips, but he heard it from Ambrose's. But Ambrose himself was an answer to prayer. You know, he told Monica that, you know, uh, what did he say? He's like the child of a mother, the child of a mother who had so many tears, you know, God, God can't ignore that. You know, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but then beyond prayer, fasting and sacrifice. So these are two that I think often get missed. There's a lot of parents and grandparents who do pray, you know, a daily rosary or a novena or, or something for their fallen away children. But Fasting and sacrifice are, are just as powerful. When it's this mysterious physics that when you when you take on pain and suffering willfully on behalf of somebody else, God honors that. Not because he's bound to, but because he wants to. And I've seen this again and again in my life. I've seen it with friends. I share a lot of stories in this book. It's there are two more powerful tools in the arsenal that I think many parents and grandparents don't use. Um, and you don't have to do it yourself either. I encourage in the book, you know, get together with a group of other parents whose kids has drifted right. away and collectively decide, yeah. look, we're going to fast one day a week, or we're going to, you know, make this or that sacrifice, or pray together for our kids. And you do that committedly for a while, you're going to see results. Yeah, my Catholic evangelization class that I used to teach, we would meet weekly, and the cornerstone of it was fasting and prayer every week, and then we would have them report in, and it was just amazing how when, like, at one point, this one woman was so distraught because her, she was actually praying for her sister, who had fallen away from the church for 30, 40 years, and was hardcore into drugs as a 70 year old Mm. right and so we all so i just picked her and said okay everyone for one week we're gonna fast for this person and what we're what our intention is that someone in her life will intervene Mm. because she's on the other side of the country she hasn't spoken to her sister in years she's been away from god and so the whole class it was like, like about 35 people we all did it uh, for this one woman and you know you do a glory report you know the next the next week did anything happen and she's like well she called me for the first time in 25 years right like we actually had a conversation for like two hours on the phone and i was able to share with her the gospel for mm. the first time like it was just insane and you realize like oh wait a second there are uh there are more things than what my little brain can cook up in a you know <laughs> Uh, a Facebook com box, you know, yeah. that can actually lead to someone's salvation. There is power here that we need to draw on. So, yeah, um, yeah uh, that's just such a good note. So why don't we, um, yeah, so you have equip yourself. How, do, how about the actual conversation? Because hmm. that's what a lot of our emails come from. Like, how do I talk to my kid about dot, dot, dot? Or how do I talk to my you know brother or sister? How would you talk about or how do you introduce um, the conversation itself, the dialogue itself? Yeah, I, again, have a whole chapter on just starting the conversation. There's other chapters on continuing and making more fruitful, but a whole chapter on starting the conversation. And real briefly, I'll highlight a few of the things I recommend. So first, even before you open a conversation with your fallen away child or grandchild, you need to build a relationship of trust and love. They need to be convinced that 
you love them unconditionally and that you will their good. And, mm. you know, frankly, for a lot of kids, they don't think that about their parents or their grandparents. Right. And so if you come to them to talk about religion, they automatically have their hackles up because they think you're trying to manipulate them or pressure them or something. They don't think that you're really willing their good. So for a lot of parents and grandparents, it's just a reality that you're going to have to take a long time just rebuilding that trust and that loving relationship by, for example, doing things that your child might enjoy. You know, I shared the story in a book about a very, very well-known Catholic speaker. I can't share his name, but like A-list Catholic celebrity, you know, goes, speaks to thousands of people <laughs> all the time. And he had a son who left the church and it was obviously devastating for him on so many reasons. Um, he didn't know what to yeah. do. He tried everything, but he realized here that the relationship was just strained and broken. And so what he committed to was I'm going to, his, his son was really interested in like heavy metal rock music, which he found abhorrent, you know, he couldn't stand it, but he said, look, I gotta, I gotta regain that trust. And so he surprised his son by buying two tickets to this rock concert that his son wanted to go to. And he went to it. His son was shocked that his dad did this. He never thought in a million years his dad would be interested in something he would. He went to the concert. He said, "We." He said, "I I made it through. I didn't really enjoy it, but you know, I knew my son was thrilled." <laughs> but then afterward, took took his son out to dinner, and all of a sudden, all of the barriers and hackles went down. The son started opening up. They yeah. had this conversation over dinner about faith and life. It was profound, and that was the beginning that opened the door to much more serious conversations about God and religion. And it was only like a few months later that his son came back to the church, started attending mass again, warmed back up to the faith. I think that's, that's a, awesome. an initial step for a lot of parents and grandparents is to first rebuild the relationship. Then you can start opening these doors. Now, when it is time to open doors, one thing I always recommend is ask more questions than you do make statements, ask more questions than you do make statements because for several reasons. They're non-threatening. You know, I'm just asking what you think. I'm not trying to tell you what to think. Two, they're respectful and dignifying. You know, I care about you. I care about what you believe. I think it's important. And then three, it helps you to identify where your child or grandchild is religiously and morally and maybe detect any objections or problems that they're facing vis-a-vis -vis the church. So I share a lot of questions in the book. Um, one of them, I think maybe the most important one, is just to point blank ask them, you know, hey, look, I know you were raised in the church. You know, mom and dad, we we took you to church every Sunday. But then I know, you know, after you got off to college, you kind of stopped going and you don't really go to church anymore. I'm not sure if you believe in God. You know, why why is that? What What changed or what shifted or why did you drift away? And then just cede the floor to them, you know, and don't, this isn't the time to start answering or responding to whatever right. they say. It's, it's just yeah. listening. You're just accumulating data. You're just trying to. You're on a fact finding mission. Yes. It's yes. a fact finding yes, mission. Yes. That's a good way to yeah. put it. So anyway, I, I have, again, I have a lot more in the book, but those are some introductory yeah. steps to open the conversation. I, I, th I think that, you know, like what you just said, I, I don't think people realize what a major trust builder it is to ask a question and not respond. Yeah. Like it is a huge trust builder and people don't use it. So I like that. I, I that, that was my favorite part of the book was the starting the conversation. And definitely there were some things that I was like, oh man, I, I gotta, I gotta work on this kind of thing. You know, I also think, um, you know, in the story you told that was powerful about the, the kid, the dad who went to the the heavy metal concert, right? One of the things that people don't remember, <laughs> don't realize is that you assume that like you, you try to raise your child in the faith, they leave the church, they leave the faith, they leave the Lord. And you kind of assume that they're starting from ground zero. But in a lot of ways, like you start uncovering stuff that was there from the beginning, you know, like, and so like, I think that's where a lot of despair comes from. Like this story that a kid of four months later comes back to the church. Well, that's not, that's not surprising to me because, you know, there is, you did something good when they were growing up, you tried to give yeah. them the faith and there are parts of that there. So I, I, I love that part of the book. And, uh, I, my question is, <laughs> uh, you know, when, when someone has a bad relationship with their, mm. with their parents, I think one of the questions we get a lot is how long do I wait before I start this conversation? How long mm, do I wait yeah. building the relationship? Do you have any thoughts about that? 
Yeah, I, I don't know if, if there's an easy answer to that. I think, right. you know, it's it's kind of an intuition thing. You'll you'll know when the relationship is healthy enough to open that door. But for a lot of parents and grandparents in this situation, it could be that the path the Lord wants to take in that scenario is for someone else to come into your child or, Amb- right. or life. You know, I, I had a slip there to mention Ambrose's name. Like maybe your role is not yeah. to be the one to speak truth into their life, but you're praying and fasting for an Ambrose figure to come into their life. Another friend, you know, another, maybe a future spouse, you know, wh- whoever it is that maybe it's somebody else that's going to move in and, and help draw them back to the church. Um, it doesn't always have to be you. You you can play a role and be an instigator, but you don't have to be the final solution. Yeah. That's Actually, you're both wrong. It's six months. Six yeah. Months exactly. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> flat, I knew. Flat, it's just six months. You got to wait six <laughs> yeah, months. Yeah, you know. No, but the, that's the other great thing about, um, you know, sometimes I think people miss the mark in evangelization that their goal is often... I am here to get my right. kid to go to mass and that's it. Like mm-hmm. to be a practicing Catholic means just in terms of going to mass. Now it certainly doesn't mean that going to mass is not the heart and soul of being a Roman Catholic, obviously, but so often we miss the other venue, uh, the other avenues, the other lights, the other things that are going on in their lives. And we just myopically focus on Holy days of obligation. Mm-hmm. Got to get them back to the Holy days of obligation. And um, it, it's funny because where I've seen a lot of success with, with people in this regard where there is a contentious relationship is the most important thing is healing that contention in the relationship, you know? Yeah. And then they can see, and I say that because they need to see the manifestation of the grace of the Holy spirit that he actually changes lives. Like why just subscribe to like for some people hearing the gospel will be like me walking up to you being like, okay, let me tell you about Odin. Yeah. Right. It's like, here's some, a collection of stories. Like they don't see the living vital presence, the, the, the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and actually having a parent repent to their child for their, you know, the horrible things they said or that period when I was an alcoholic and I was raising you and you're resentful for it or, you know, whatever the host of things might be, that is another manifestation of that power of the Holy Spirit to bring, to make a way for the gospel to be heard. If it is, you know, if you are the one that God wants to anoint to, to engage in that with your kiddo. I, I think a major hurdle, like what you just said, is if they if they do not see a life that's changed. Mm. Yeah. And they've and they say, wait a minute, they've been doing this for how many years? And I think it's no surprise that we're about to see over the next, you know, 50 years a whole host of saints being declared that we're parents of other saints. You know mm. what I mean? I mean, there, there's <laughs> there's something there to that. You know, what I mean, there's something about that. Uh and and you know. Uh, that's why I like, you know, starting with the prayer, sacrifice, those things, because it's, that's what it's all about, really. You know, you're not trying yeah. to convert someone to cultural Catholicism. You're trying mm. to, to bring them to our Lord Jesus Christ, who can, who can rise, raise them from the dead, you know? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a brief pause in our interview with Brandon to hear a message from our fine folks at Ascension Press. Two thousand years ago, Jesus Christ chose corrupt, broken, imperfect, sinful men to be the foundation of his church. And because these broken, imperfect men chose to remain in relationship with Jesus, they became saints. And they were used by Jesus to transform hearts and minds two thousand years later. I invite you to check out my book, Broken and Blessed where you'll find practical tools to overcome habitual sin, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and to walk with an imperfect church toward a perfect God who is calling all of us to perfection over time. To order the paperback book or audiobook, Broken and Blessed, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. Can I tell you a great real quick story? Last night, so my church has been doing these events at a local bar. We call it our satellite campus, uh, Deacon Baldy's. And uh, it's a great place. a great place. Parishioners built it. Amazing people. But um, so we go there on Monday nights because the bar is closed on Monday. And you can rent out the place. And so we rent it out. 
and we're just having socials there so that people can get back to feeling normal. So there's no mask requirement, all that stuff. And it's been a hoot and a half. I love it. It's awesome. And this woman runs up to me. Now, I was her adult child's youth minister back in the day. So like a year ago, she comes up to me and she's in tears and she's like, he's not going to church. He's not living his Catholic faith. He doesn't believe anymore. Pray, pray, pray. She's like, I pray for him every day. Me and his father, we pray all the time. And I'm like, well, good. Keep praying. Keep praying. Maybe the Lord will send him someone to wake him up. Well, he did send him someone. I got this report yesterday. She, He said <laughs> the good Lord sent him uh, uh, an, a Coptic Orthodox woman and they were dating. And at one point in their relationship, she said, if we are to go any further, you have to renounce your religion and become Coptic. And she's like, I will give you a couple months to decide. Wow. And yeah, she gave him an ultimatum and a deadline and a deadline. This woman must be very type A. Right. So uh, she gives him a deadline. I would just vaguely insinuate things for months and months. But uh, so he came to this moment and her parents, his parents flew out and they were talking and he, it, it started within him this revolt. Like, no, I'm a Catholic. Hmm. Like I, I okay I'm yeah no I am a Catholic like that causes huge awakening to the point where he had a breakdown and uh he said to this woman like I can't do this I cannot give up my Catholic faith it's who I am it's in my identity and she looked at him and she called him the the they they kind of went on a break and she called him like a day or two later was like I had no idea your faith meant anything to you yeah and she said, I never want you to renounce your faith. I just thought you didn't believe. Like, she wanted him to get rid of his cultural baggage and really step up into Christian faith. And for him, and when he was like, no, I'm willing to end the most important relationship in my life because God matters to me. It totally changed everything. Mm -hmm. She's like, so I don't know if they're going to get back together, but my son's back. He's going to mass again. Yeah, <laughs> it's know? amazing. So it, That's awesome. It's just crazy how the Lord works. It is really, really crazy. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's go to some objections, and then uh, we're going to throw out. I, I think now you are no stranger to argument, right? See, I could, that was an allusion to your website. It was a little, little strange notions uh, plug. I have sent so many high school students to strange notions, and I've sent so many Protestants becoming Catholic. We just brought in fifteen last week or on Sunday. Wow, uh, into the Catholic Church of my church, and I send them. To your church fathers literally nice. when i type in your name in my in my chrome browser it says brandon vought fathers nice <laughs> nice because that website i copy and paste copy yeah. and paste it's funny um, uh i I, but, I get emails almost yeah. every week uh, with the churchfathers.org website because we intentionally designed it to be uh ecclesially neutral for lack of a better word it, do, it doesn't say the word catholic oh. or catholicism or anywhere it's just excerpts from the church fathers on all of these questions so i get an email almost every week from someone saying who designed this website is it catholics or protestants i want to know if i can trust it <laughs> we always just say doesn't matter just read the, just read the quotes from the church fathers That's and funny. so yeah. it's this very so clandestine conversion tool yeah yeah yeah, I mean the first uh, the first category is Mary and the Saints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Balls in your court, guy who thinks it's Protestant. Um, <laughs> so, Dave, did you have anything before we go on to the big? No, no. Yeah, let's go to the objections. I'm excited. Let's go to the objections. Okay, so here's one that I hear a lot, and I think it is pretty important to have some sort of some sort of uh, of approach to this question, which is I had a bad experience with the church, and I can't see myself coming back. Right. Whether it was uh, one of my favorites was, you know, I'm, I'm so used to like apologizing on behalf of Holy Mother Church. That's like all I do as a layperson. But there's one time this person was like, yeah, I had this guy yell at me a mass. And I'm like, OK, here we go. OK, what happened? And she said, well, I received the Eucharist and I just walked away and I was like holding it in my fingers and kind of tossing it up and down. And they grabbed me and told me that I had to consume it in front of everyone. I was like. <laughs> Yeah, no, you screwed up on that. Yeah, right. That was your fault. Right. That was your fault. But um, what what do you say to people who said, I had a bad experience and I can't see myself going back? Yeah, I mean, to me, there's a two-prong approach to this. Um, first and most important is you just want to express sympathy and compassion for that person. You don't want to immediately jump to a defense of how, you know, well, maybe the, maybe you misunderstood the situation or maybe, you know, whatever, whatever. No, no, just apologize and say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I can see why that would have been so difficult and traumatizing. I'm with you. I would have been really upset and hurt if that had happened to me. So just apologize, empathize, you know, show that you get it. You understand their pain. You see why they got so upset. 
So that's first, and that'll build, you know, this shared build of this shared bridge of trust. But then second, help them see that the church is bigger than that one parish or that one priest or that one event that that pushed them the wrong way. You know, help them see that that was an isolated incident, that it wasn't representative of the full church. Many times this is easy to do because when people have bad experiences, when a priest says something to them uh, that sounds off, it usually is off. Like it, it literally is not really what right. the church teaches or what the church means. For example, um, I share this story in there about uh, this this uh, woman who was raped and then got an abortion. And she went and told the priest about this and and was actually, I think, seeking confession. She wanted to go, she realized the sin of abortion was wrong. She wanted to go confess it. But the priest derided her for being raped and said that, you know, again, I'm hearing this secondhand, so I don't know exactly how it was put, but the sense she got was, you know, you, you were a disgrace. You let this happen. You're partially at fault, blah, blah. And she said, I, I felt like they were the most judgmental, hurtful people in the world. I never went back to church again. Now, in a situation like that, you can apologize, empathize, but then you can say, look, the church has like the the utmost concern and forgiveness for people who sin, but in a situation like rape, the, you didn't do anything wrong. If a priest implied that or insinuated that, he was wrong, and he's certainly not representative of the church here. So you just need to help people see that that situation, that isolated incident was not indicative of the whole church. Yeah. yeah, One of the things I I always like to do along these same same lines is immediately tell them a story about something similar that happened to me, you know, where, so that they, and, and so that they start asking that question, like, well, you stayed with it. So why did that happen? You know, because I do think, especially now today, often like the story you tell is very sincere and real, but there's also a whole group of people now who use the church scandal as a whole Mm -hmm. as the excuse, you know? Yeah. And so if you can kind of take that excuse off the table and be like, okay, let's stop talking about that. You know what I mean? Let's, let's address that it was evil and awful and everything, but we got to get past this at some point. You know? Yeah. So. I, there, I have a different question in the book specifically about the sexual abuse scandal, because I think there's a couple of little yeah. twists and turns you might take differently with that one. So for example, when talking about the sex abuse crisis, I like to tell people, look, what happened was horrible. It was abhorrent. You know, nobody, of course, would support that. And by being in the church, remaining in the church, I'm not supporting that. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, I realized that the church is my family. And if you had a family, imagine like if somebody was threatening your house, was coming in to rob your house, you wouldn't leave and just let the bad guys take over. You would say, this is my family. This is my home. I'm going to stay and fight. I'm going to protect this place and make it better. And so I'm I'm staying in the church uh, despite the sexual abuse crisis and almost in reaction to it. Like it's because right. partly because of the abuse crisis that I remain because I want to make sure that never happens again. I want to make sure that the church is full of holiness and and uprightness and morality. And I don't want any children to be hurt or abused. And so I want to stay and fight on behalf of the victims. I don't just want to leave. So I encourage people that have left, you know, we need you. We need you to come back to, yeah. to, to be a part of this solution to fight. Yes, what happened was bad, but we need you to help make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, excellent. I love I love that. Yeah, the human side of the church is always in need of reform. (laughs) Constantly go into that. Yeah. Um, Another one of your objections that I hear now a lot more now that I'm a part of youth ministry again, every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in and I'm doing youth (laughs) ministry. I'm working with high school students and I get the, well, the church hates gays, lesbians, you know, the church discriminates against transgendered people because I, I had one student in particular, I was doing a uh, a private school assembly and then afterwards I was invited to the religion class and this kid goes yeah I got a question for you and I was like oh now here we go and it was um, why does the church not allow transgendered women so men who have made the transition to women be the godmother uh-huh. and I was like that is strangely specific <laughs> but apparently it came up in a diocese so yeah. how would you how would you address you know for people who either you know you you even have a follow-up question I'm gay right yeah. and the church has rejected me how do you how do you address for people who keep their distance from the church because of non-condoning of gay marriage LGBT relationships you know even the you know when you hear Pope Francis talk about the wider approach of condemning 
um, the new gender ideology that's out there. Uh, and so many high school students are a hundred percent in lockstep with this. How do you yeah. how do you uh, approach that? Yeah. yeah, I think the first strategy would be to immediately turn the question back on the other person and say, "What do you What do you think that the church teaches about homosexuality?" And, and see mm-hmm. if they're able to articulate it. Because in my experience, most people would would say it just as you did that the church hates gay and lesbian people. The church hates transgender people. That's the way I've, I've heard it put yeah. ad nauseum. Um, and if that's the case, good. That opens a door for you to say, well, you know, I, I get that that's a common misperception, but actually the church hates no one, first of all. Like the church preaches love, hates not even in its vocabulary. In fact, in, in the Catholic Church's official teaching, like in the catechism of the Catholic Church, it, it explicitly condemns hatred or mistreatment of of people who have same-sex attraction. It says that, you know, they should be treated with, uh, what is it, dignity and respect and sensitivity, something like that. So that's, I think, the first move is to clarify what the church actually teaches, that if anybody is upset that the church either condones or uh, the church's teachings lead to violence or unjust discrimination against same-sex attracted people, then say, look, we're against that too. You know, that's that's a misapplication or a misinterpretation of what the church teaches and believes. Um, so that's the first move. Second move, I would say in practice, do, do Catholics actually embrace and embody the church's teaching perfectly on this? No. And so I think it probably is the case that uh, young people have had bad experiences with actual Catholics who have come across as mean-spirited, bigoted, hate, hate, full of hatred, you know, yeah. animosity. And so that's an opportunity where you can empathize or apologize saying, look, I'm, I'm sorry if, you know, if you or your family member same-sex attracted and they've received, you know, terrible uh, uh, responses from, from Catholic people. That's, that's, you know, I don't support that. I'm not with that. But then third and finally, if they're open to it, and this might not be the case in a lot in a lot of for a lot of young people, but if they're open to it, you can ask them, hey, are, let, let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about why the church is against homosexual activity or why the church stands athwart same-sex marriage or transgenderism? Like, why do you think that is? And and give them a chance to articulate why they think the church is resistant to those things. And and 99 times out of 100, they'll say, well, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And that admission opens a door because they're admitting ignorance. They're admitting, I don't right. know. you know. And so that's an invitation for you to explain and why. And then you got him. You go, yeah. ha ha, gotcha, <laughs> Boom. you dummy. Yeah. And then you <laughs> might make fun of him. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it, oh, trap closed. It reminds me of the, the Chesterton analogy. And of course, I always have to interject at least one Chesterton analogy in every yeah. interview. But that's he says, spirit. you know, if you come, if you come across a, uh, he has it a few different ways. In one essay, he says a gate. In another essay, he says uh, a, a door. But suppose you have a, you, you're walking through the woods and you see a giant four-sided gate just in the middle of the woods. Some people would say, what in the world is there a gate here for? There's no purpose. Let's just knock it down. But he says, Chester said this exact wrong approach. The first question you should ask is, why is that gate here? And if you can't figure out the answer to that gate, you don't knock it down. You don't knock it down until you understand why it was put up in the first place. And I think that same approach, we can help people when it comes to uh, issues around uh, gay, lesbian, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgenderism. You can help the other person see, look, until you understand why the church is resistant to these things, you know, withhold judgment, withhold judgment. And and uh, and let me tell you why the church uh, takes issue with some of these things before you're quick to condemn it. Yeah, I think that's perfect. And I think that it's such a hot button issue. And so I think it is a good idea, like the process that you kind of just walked us through, like to take it a little bit slow. You know what I mean? Like that, this can take place over months and months, sure. what you're saying, you know, it doesn't have to be immediate. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I think that that also what Gomer said, I think it's one of the number one questions that young people get because um, it's it's presented constantly. And Unfortunately, it is becoming a larger hurdle because it's largely becoming just the Catholic Church that rejects, you know, uh, that that way of 
the way of life, right? And so, you know, it, it is a, is it, it's becoming an issue we have to address. So Although I also I d- think you know, I, I did find this interesting on that note that when I was researching for this book, I came across some surveys of the religious identities of people who identify as LGBT, and what they found was that more self-identifying LGBT folks are Catholic than any other religion. So 17% of them identify as Catholic, 13% as evangelical, 11% as general Protestant, 9% is agnostic, and 8% is atheist. The proportion of atheists and agnostics is much higher than the general population, but it's still striking to me that Catholicism is the largest representative group. And so if it's true that the Catholic Church hates gay and lesbian people, certainly a lot of LGBT right. people haven't gotten that message or don't feel that that's accurate. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I will say another thing about what you said about, you know, we love everyone and how like our church, the church's language is to love and that we must love. In fact, it's, it's a commandment that I remember, you know, on a, on a few occasions getting to meet father John Harvey, who is the founder of courage, you know, and I, the, when people ask me what I thought about him, I never in my life, met anyone more compassionate and loving than that Mm. man. And Mm. he vehemently denied, right. The, the lifestyle that, that they were, that they were living because, because of his love, but it was so compassionate, so loving, so real. It wasn't fake at all. They weren't projects. It was, it was absolutely real charity. It was, you know, agape. And, and so I, I very much think that, in practice, we have loved well in, in, in a lot of cases, in a lot yeah, of cases. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, you see it in, in Father John, you see it in Father uh, Philip Ochansky, who's now his right. successor as the head of of uh, Courage. Right. What these men are able to do, which is the, the Catholic approach, is to separate the person from the behavior, to say, yeah. look, I object your behavior, just as in my wife, my kids, my parents, right. they do all sorts right. of things that I hate, like, I, because I think they're harmful for them. You know, when my, when my child lies or, you know, t- does something that's dangerous physically to their body, I am completely against that activity because I love that person so much. I can yeah. love the person, but, but hate the right. disordered behavior. Yeah. And I think for parents, it's really, you have to be really careful that, if you are objecting to one disordered behavior that you're being, you're clearly looking at Catholic teaching and objecting to all disordered behavior, whether it be hetero or homosexual, you know? Sure. Yeah. And it's a big deal because, you know, this is part of the, the strategy of evangelizing people in the world saturated in the ideologies of the age, right? Is for one of the conversations I had, you know, saying like the church loves the sinner, but rejects the sin and, you know, doesn't identify you with the sin. The problem is, as that person pointed out, they're like, oh, great. So me being gay, I was born this way is no different than adultery in your eyes is no, you know, and for them or for this person in particular, it became a touch point of saying, you know, the similar like these acts are objectively disordered. I have desires for these acts. Therefore, I'm intrinsically disordered and kind of going through a lot of the stuff with these um, with the folks just kind of with everyone even if you're if you don't have same sex attraction the ideology that is bound up with it right like that the world has crafted almost put, puts up a shield or a bubble yeah. a protective bubble away from the church's proclamation like you know obviously the body is just a vehicle for pleasure it's just a thing that is capable of being manipulated i mean you can take that all the way back to descartes and francis bacon and all that yeah. stuff of yeah. like and that's why Pope John Paul wrote the theology of the body, like the instrumentalization of the body instead of its sacramentalization is a fundamental disruption of modern man. Like we don't even conceive of it. So when I, when I was teaching uh, the church and sexual morality to that group of Protestants who became Catholic, I was like, I started off with the Cartesian mechanistic universe and they're like, okay, okay. Yeah, I could get into that. Okay. And then when I end it with, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, the, the modern rhetoric around transgenderism as my mind is not congruent with my body. Therefore the body loses 10 times out of 10. They are like, well, wait a second. No, you can't No, wait. It's for the first time in their lives. Like they had a coherent argument that, that brought that up. And so it's so, it's so fascinating to try to navigate. I think, I think the most difficult issue today 
is navigating the LGBT, especially the new arguments within the trans community yeah. of 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 everything now is now we're going not just post gender or transgender, but transhuman. And it's like there's no limits now with this ideology. It goes and goes and goes. I think the first thousand years of the church, the biggest challenge and the thing most discussed in the church was Christology. Who is Jesus Christ? How do yep. we articulate exactly who he was and who he was not? Second millennium, the most pressing challenge and topic was ecclesiology, the church. You know, you had the Orthodox schism, Protestant Reformation, even in the last couple yep. centuries, the rise of Pentecostalism, Protestantism. But the third millennium, the most pressing topic and challenge is anthropology. What is man and what is man not? Yeah. What defines who we are as people? Um, I questions over identity, questions over, you know, the, the transhumanism thing. What, you know, Hold what on. what defines what, what separates man from angels and from animals, from beasts? You know, these are the questions of today. But by the Dude. by the way, not to nerd out too much, but I don't think it's it's all that much different from the Christological controversy, right? Remember when Athanasius, like the legend is that he screamed, his flesh is this, is my flesh, you know? Uh, and I think that there's a lot there about that, that people, it's a, a similar controversy. Yeah. Similar controversy. yeah. Real quick. Do you think, do you think Christopher West has that phrase of Athanasius like <laughs> painted on his, on his wall? <laughs> I think that is such a Christopher like, yes, yes. His flesh is my flesh. <laughs> Hashtag theology of the body. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? We're going to wrap up now. Thank you, Brandon, for coming out. Uh, I really appreciate Wait, all the work that you're doing. Go ahead. Oh, I want to say Dave? something about word on fire. What? That's important. That's uh, okay, a, I've been thinking, okay. I've been thinking about this a lot for the last three weeks. A priest, and this is why I think it's so important, why Word on Fire is so important right now, and I want to say it since Brandon's here. A priest about three months ago said, you know, in a culture that's dominated by memes and one-liners and things like that, how do we effectively engage and evangelize? And, you know, I, I fully reject that idea. Like, I don't want to meet people on that, on their own turf. And I think that as Catholics, and I want everybody who's listening to, to realize this, that we have to become theologians. Like you, you have to become good theologians. And, and our faith is not made for memes and it's not made. And yeah, they can be inspiring and things like that. Our faith is not made for one-liners. Like we should dive in. We need a, a, a renewal of Catholic intellectual life. And that's why I think Word on Fire is so important for evangelization in particular. We tend to think that evangelization is like a simpler topic in evangel in 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 Catholicism, and it shouldn't be. Uh, it should be quite the opposite, and that's why I'm I'm just so appreciative of all you do, Brandon. And anyways, I I wanted to just throw that out there to our listeners because it's important. I really appreciate that. You know, we mentioned before the show we were talking briefly about Jordan Peterson, and I don't agree with everything Jordan says, but he's become a, a great sign of hope for us because. The audience he attracts, which is predominantly 20 and 30 something year old men, this was the audience raised on memes and Reddit and, you know, QAnon and like that's where they spend their time. Yeah. But they a lot of them got burnt out by the superficiality of all that. And now they're listening to two, three hour lectures on the Bible by right. Jordan Peterson. And so what it's confirmed to us is that. Yeah, the the short hit Twitter mean, you know, quick style of ironic, sarcastic communication. It's fun for a time. It's like candy, but it's not ultimately fulfilling that even even young people raised on that stuff hunger for something deeper and more substantial. So when we provide that through Word on Fire, through outlets like what you guys are doing, people respond. People are, have been waiting for more substantial meat for a while. I agree. Yeah, it is fascinating to like I work in a men's prison. Uh, I volunteer in a men's prison that's finally opening up. And, you know, one of the things they tell you is these men have a fifth grade reading level, right? So just be aware of that. You know, they might read a lot because there's not a lot to do, but uh, they have a fifth grade reading level and you got to talk to them at that level. And yeah, that might work if you're talking to the general population. But the moment these men engage in their faith, they are reading voraciously. So the very first day I walked in to a Monday. So we do these retreats. And then after the retreats, we have these Monday classes. The very first Monday class, guy walks up to me and he goes, hey, I was just wondering real quick um, if you had anything on the church fathers, like a book that you could <laughs> donate to the library. And so I go, awesome. oh, yeah. You know, and I'm thinking like, you know, some sort of summary from, you know, Mike Aquilina or something like that. Like, yeah, I could bring you something. He goes. 
Yeah, because I have all the Ante Nicene fathers, <laughs> but I, I'm really struggling at getting this primary awesome, sources man. for the post Nicene. And I just looked at him, I was like, what? What? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, uh, okay, well, I'll see what I got. <laughs> oh, that's I'll see funny. what I can get that's donated. Funny. So now I, I just have groups of people who donate and send to my church random, you know, church father's books and I shrink wrap them and take them off to the to the prison because it's it's amazing that once in in order to defend the faith, you have to understand the faith. Yeah. In order to present the faith to the simple, you have to understand as much as you can and and you know, whatever, um, the complexities of it, right? You can't you will be humming and hawing all over yourself trying to trying to spit out what the church truly does teach. If you don't understand, if you don't take the time and discipline effort, we've been doing a couple episodes recently on atonement theology and just how fascinating that when you start to pull on that golden thread of how did his death accomplish my salvation or my forgiveness, it unlocks. I mean, it it, it connects to every part of the Bible, right. including the parts that Catholics never want to touch, a.k.a. Leviticus. Uh, I mean, it just un like it makes it come alive too when you're reading all of this stuff, and so the intellectual, the the non milk toast, as C.S. Lewis would say, right, the non coloring book Christianity, like we really do have to get back to that if we're going to be effective evangelists in this world today. So uh, thank you for writing a book like Return: How to Draw Your Child Back to the Church. Uh, you know, um, all the stuff that you're doing, all the 400 websites you manage on the side. <laughs> Uh, the Burrowshire podcast uh, with your with your buddy, um, like these are excellent resources that you are responding to a need in the church. So thank you, and uh, I really appreciate it. No, thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dave, you want to wrap us up, and then uh... yeah, this has been every knee shall bow. As always, if you have any questions, we love to hear from you. Your questions, we love to hear your glory stories, especially. Email us at eksb at ascensionpress .com. We love being a part of the Ascension Press community. We're so thankful for all the great stuff they put out, and we will uh, see you next week. God bless you all. 